Hi, I'm Tom Flynn. And I'm Lori Feathers. And welcome to Lost in Redonda. Hi, Lori. How are you today? I'm well, Tom. I'm so excited about today's show. Yeah, we've uh, finally made it to the prime, as I've been referring to it on the podcast. And I think even in just conversation, probably with random strangers, I've been talking about the prime and how it's uh, coming towards me like a meteor. Yeah, today we're going to be talking about the uh, prime of Miss Jean Brody, uh, Miro Sparks' uh, sixth novel. You might call it the creme de la creme of the Muriel Spark. <laughs> you, you you certainly may. Um, I think we're going to probably land on that uh, point by the end of the podcast. Absolutely. Um, but a quick bit, bit of uh, housekeeping. Um, this will be our uh, last episode for this part of the season. We're going to take a little bit of a break. Uh, this episode should be going up on December 29th. And then we will uh, be back in your ears uh, in later January with more Muriel, Muriel Spark, more of our... Uh, our friends and guests uh, with their backlist picks and just more, you know, bookseller chat about books that we love. But uh, today is all about the prime. Um, yeah. How do you want to kick this off, Lori? There's uh, an unbelievable amount to uh, get into. I mean, there's always an unbelievable, unbelievable amount to get into with her books, but this one feels despite its brevity uh, just chock full of, I don't know, everything to, to, to chat about. Yeah, this, this seems to me to be the, uh, the UK boarding school novel that everything that's come afterwards in that type of genre is probably, (laughs) is probably, uh, striving for it's, it's not, heavily gothic although i do think there's some kind of gothicy elements to it it's so astute it's very clever and it's really damn funny it's also kind of an oddity i think from the uh, novels that came before it i mean it's certainly by the same writer but it feels i don't know to me it feels quite a bit different um i think that's a bit of a structural thing she is jumping back and forth through time a lot uh, in this novel. Uh, it's tracking over a pretty long period of time. Um, and she creates characters and disposes of them in a very interesting way in this novel. But then they continue to circle back because they're not gone quite yet. Um, and the action that's taking place earlier in the novel, I mean, earlier in the timeline of the novel it just feels less you could certainly you could certainly tell that the author of the bachelors also wrote this novel but i don't think you would say that they are similar novels uh necessarily i don't know maybe maybe i'm overthinking this a bit well i think that you could say that they're similar in so far as she identifies in this one like she did in the bachelors a real type I mean, obviously, in The Bachelors, the type is are these, you know, young, unmarried males uh, living in, in London. And, and here it's Scottish boarding school, um, to uh, use a term that we'll be using throughout the episode, set. Um, you know, the, the most, most of the faculty at this boarding school are kind of of a type, you know, they're what you might expect um, from a very proper boarding school um, in Edinburgh, except for Miss Jean Brody in, in her prime, uh, who's, who's a very different, <laughs> and that, that causes, you know, um, a world of problems in the novel, and, and it makes it very interesting. But yeah, I think that uh, that's, that's one common thread that I see, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that's that's a really good point. There was a uh, so this is a very, very short novel, like 137 pages somehow manages to pack about eight different lives into it. I don't know. That's actually an undercount. I think it's like about 10 different lifetimes um, or large chunks of 10 characters lifetimes are covered in great detail. Um, and some of the most important moments of those lives Um 
But the beginning of chapter three, this is probably the passage, a passage that sounds the most like the opening to, and I specifically chose The Bachelors um, because of the content of this. And this is uh, describing um, Miss Brody and the uh, some of the other teachers at the school. There were legions of her kind during the 1930s, women from the age of 30 and upward, who crowded their war-bereaved spinsterhood with voyages of discovery into new ideas and energetic practices in art or social welfare, education, or religion. The progressive spinsters of Edinburgh did not teach in schools, especially in schools of traditional character like Marsha Blaine's School for Girls. It was in this that Miss Brody was, as the rest of the staff spinsterhood put it, a trifle out of place. But like, I made a note as I hit that portion saying, I guess this one could have been called the spinsters, you know, the bachelors <laughs> followed, followed up by the, by the spinsters. So certainly I think, and in a moment we'll dig into the plot a bit. So this is a little more grounded, but I certainly, I think that um, spark is doing, as you said, she's identified a type and she's kind of digging into the ramifications of what being that type or not quite fitting into that type means um, kind of using it as a way to turn a different lens on the society of the time. But I think that because of what she's doing, um, moving over a basically 30, almost 30 year period, she's giving more of a directional, more of, a, more of an arrow of how things are progressing, where things are going, um, and not just this is what things are not just, you know, cutting through society, giving you a cross cutting of um, the spiritualists and how they interact, uh, the communists and how they interact, the um, uh, converted Catholics and how they interact. And of course, there's a converted Catholic in here. I think there's there's a different kind of momentum uh, because of what she's doing with these girls, with Jean Brody and um yeah, how much time she's covering uh, covering here. It is, it is really short in length, but none of the books so far have been any more than 200 pages. But there is, there is I think, a certain pacing to this book that feels, that feels a little more urgent um, and kind of like it really, it really sweeps you along. It's, it's an extremely immersive book you just kind of start it and you're like, wow, this is just getting crazier and crazier. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It does. So yeah, I guess, but let's do a little bit of the plot so that we, so our listeners who haven't dug into this yet. And I swear if there's one book that you read, it must be this one. Um, but they should, you should read all of Miro Spark, but, um, Let's ground this a little bit. So uh, the prime of Miss Jean Brody uh, is following a uh, group of uh, schoolgirls, um, Sandy, Rose, Mary, Jenny, Monica, and Eunice, uh, who are referred to as the Brody set. Um, they are in school, in private school in uh, Edinburgh. And Miss um, Brody has kind of singled these girls out and taking them under her wing. Uh, with a very different style of education than in, than is otherwise taught uh, in the school. Um, and she has them basically from the age of 10 or so uh, until they're 12 when they move on to the senior school, but she maintains contact with them and continues to mentor and influence them um, such that everyone else in the school notices them because they're part of this set and because of Miss Brody's reputation. But Brody also seems to have an eye for talent, for engaging in interesting young women um, or young women who can be molded in a direction that makes them that way. I, I'm not, that part's a, a little more unclear to me, but she clearly knows which girls are going to be something interesting um, as they develop. Um, and they're all wildly different. Jenny uh, um, is moves into drama and becomes an actress. Uh, Eunice is a an athlete, um, amongst other things. Mary is the, well, Mary is sort of the black sheep of the group. Um, she's described as not very bright. And in all of her interactions, that is, I mean, it's, it's not even not very bright. She's just lost. Like, I mean, it's, 
it's kind of hard reading the sections about Mary. You, I, I certainly grew up with kids who you felt for because it just seemed like the whole world was a going to be a challenge for them. But she kind of serves a function as the black sheep and a bit of a, a and to mix it up a bit, uh, a scapegoat where Miss Brody and the other girls are able to heap a certain amount of scorn on her for what she's doing or what she's saying or not saying. Um, and that, and Miss for Miss Brody anyways, puts into sharp relief what she thinks the girls should be doing. You've got Monica, who's a uh, maths and sciences whiz, but uh, also gets very angry and lashes out. And as the as the novel progresses, Brody and another care, uh, one of the other girls, Sandy, start to kind of assign reasons behind each girl's temperament. Why does Monica get so angry? Um, and it's because she's so smart at math. She can't feel the spiritual side of things and, and that sort of thing. Um, Brody's methods are very much looked, are frowned upon. Um, not even frowned upon. The headmistress wants her gone. She thinks she's uh, a bad influence. She's disruptive, but she can't come up with any good reason why she should be dismissed. Except we find out uh, in the very early part of the novel that she is dismissed. And one of the Brody set is the one who betrays her and gives the information needed for her to be thrust out of her prime. I think that's a good starting point. Uh, do you want to go into her prime a little bit there, Lori? Yeah, well, maybe just generally talking about the eccentricity of Jean Brody. She's a woman that's traveled. She has a particular fondness for Italy and all things Italian. She's quite a helpless romantic. She likes to tell stories to her girls, as um, as it's, they say it over and over again um, in the movie, which is is quite quite extraordinary. I would recommend it as well. She talks about her past love life, and you know, gets into like some personal details in into some like romantic kind of things that perhaps um, you know, I think today no one would really blink an eye, but in 1930 in uh, Scotland at a private boarding school, you know, you probably wouldn't talk about the passionate love that you had for the man who died on the battlefield in Flanders, you know? She almost categorically refuses to teach the curriculum, the standard curriculum that she's supposed to be teaching. When she's supposed to be teaching history or other topics, she's, you know, pontificating about art or having them recite romantic poetry and memorize it. She takes the girls on all kinds of excursions. She's a big fan of having class outside in nature and having like picnic lunches while the other students are like eating their gruel um, in, in the boarding house cafeteria. She's attractive She's not dowdy looking, and she is the envy of the other uh, women instructors at the boarding school. At the same time, and I guess not so surprisingly, because the women are all jealous of her, the two male teachers in particular are quite hot for her, and that causes... Um, a bit of a love triangle uh, between Brody and two of the male instructors. Yeah, uh, Mr. Lloyd, Teddy Lloyd, um, who is a, the art teacher, uh, a war veteran, um, Catholic, married with um, at least six children, and uh, uh, Gordon Lowther, uh, who is the singing teacher, unmarried, uh, wealthy, uh, he lived with his mother up until her passing a couple years prior to the start of the novel, you know, has a grand house and lands uh, outside of Edinburgh. And um, yeah, it's one of the sort of big moments early in the novel where the girls think that they saw Miss Brody and Mr. Lloyd um, kissing passionately in the art room so much so that they, they saw it so quickly that, they can't quite convince themselves that they did see it, but they're pretty sure that they did. I believe it's Monica 
who um, spotted it and then is subject to uh, an intense interrogation um, uh, from Sandy. Sandy was trying so hard to make it clear in her head that it was possible that she was questioning every part of Monica's story. And we see Monica get progressively angrier and angrier as uh, Sandy doesn't back off at all. It's a very, it's a funny interchange, but it also, it also serves to um, reinforce a lot of what I think Spark is doing in this novel in that she's, she's laying out a lot of the things that shape and form who these girls become, the kind of women they become, um, why they make the choices they do in a few years' time um, to choose the professions they do, uh, engage in the affairs they do. And Spark does this thing throughout where I mentioned earlier that she kind of disposes of characters. She tells us where they end up. She doesn't go any further than about 1958-59. So that actually catches the, the characters to up to the time when all the other novels we've read are, are, are taking place, which is really, I, I think that's very clever and also very interesting because then the rest of the novel, I mean, 90% of it is taking place in the thirties in the run up to um, the second world war um, in the wake of, you know, as we, as I read about the, the spinsterhood in the wake of the great war. That is interesting. The way that she, she does that presents that, very much in the first pages of the book, you know, letting you know, oh, flashing forward, you know, this is, this is what this, this girl, you know, became and what happened to her, almost like you would get an epilogue or something um, to a novel. Um, but, but yeah, we're presented this upfront, including the sad news that poor Mary McGregor dies in a fire. Um, we learn very, very early on. And you kind of you kind of feel from the get-go that Mary McGregor is gonna be, like you said, one of those kind of unfortunate people in life that nothing really works out for. Yeah, Mary is one that it seems is just sort of wandering through life and frightened. I mean, frightened or or the world is just incomprehensible to her. The fire she dies in, she's, you know, trapped in a hallway. She runs from one one side to the next and is prevented presented with a fire on either side and she just keeps running back and forth she never tries to go into a room and see if there's a window she can go out of she just keeps running back and forth back and forth and that's that's how she dies in 1943 and that's actually prefigured uh when she gets to the senior school and is in uh the science class um they're running an experiment with uh, magnesium and Bunsen burners, and it causes, you know, once the magnesium heats up sufficiently, you basically have a massive flare going off, brighter than anything you can look at. But these are happening all around the, the room, and Mary starts running from one to the next, one to the next, trying to get away but not knowing how to get away. If Spark had done the scene in school first, that would be hysterical, right? This idea of this girl not being able to figure out, like, A, it's controlled, and B, Go somewhere else. Don't keep running back to the one you just ran away from. It's goldfish memory. But because she does it second, I don't know. There's there's something very um, sad. And M Mary's tale is just is is the sad one of of the grouping. And Brody, after she is uh, forced out of the school and uh, towards the end of her life, uh, she continues to see the girls. She remarks that maybe they should have been, she should have been nicer to Mary and all the girls at some point as adult women remark that maybe they should have been nicer to Mary. Yeah. Mary's, Mary's the exception, it seems of the, of the six girls in the Brody set, Mary has neither looks nor smarts. So she is just kind of the hanger on, so to speak. But getting back to the, the two male teachers, um, a relationship with Mr. Lloyd is impossible because he is married and he is Catholic. Uh, and Brody proclaims him to be the, the, the love of this part of her life. Um, she had a suitor uh, who died in the Great War, uh, Hugh. And she would tell the girls as part of this unusual education what she and Hugh would do, like uh, the outings they would take, um, what he looked like, how she felt about him. Um, but after, after she kissed Lloyd and falls in love with him, she starts to inflect her stories about Hugh with suggestions that 
he was artistic, that he was this. And she starts to blend. She's almost like self-justifying her love as like, well, Hugh always was this. and I'm just seeing it again. And then she does that further with um, Mr. Lowther, uh, who the, the singing teacher, because now Hugh was a very good singer as well. But Lowther, she takes up with um, kind of in place of Lloyd. It's not clear to me if it was to make Lloyd jealous or because because she needed someone in her life. And, and that one is kept very secret. Lowther clearly asks her for marriage and she refuses because he's just sort of a placeholder of sorts. Spark has such a great way of showing off and just demonstrating how, I don't know, the sexual mores as they were expressed in a lot of popular media are not remotely the sexual mores that were at play and are they're not the ones that she's interested in representing. She wants to show that people were having uh, sex out of wedlock, that there were very complicated um, arrangements that people were making. Um, people's motivations were all over the place. And it just brings a, a vitality and a um, dimensionality to her characters that is, I don't know, it, it gets, I, I think it earns a very quick buy-in from the reader that this is a writer who knows what they're doing and is representing something very interesting at the same time. One of the funny things about Miss Brody's relationship with Teddy Lloyd, who, um, as you said, is the art teacher at the school, is that um, he paints portraits. That's kind of what he what he does, and he paints all different types of people. And in some point in the novel, he paints. Um, some of the girls in the Brody set. But the problem with all of his paintings is that um, Teddy Lloyd only has one muse, and that muse is Jean Brody. And so because of that influence on him, um, everyone's got Jean Brody's face. Um, you know, whether he's he's painting the girls at the school or, or just whoever members of his family. Um, everyone ends up looking like Jean Brody, which I think, I think is a really funny, I don't know, way to, way to work the whole artistic muse kind of, kind of theme because, you know, we all hear about like the tortured painters, you know, and, and how they've, you know, they often have like the, these unrequited loves for people. But I've never heard of anyone, at least I'm not an art expert, but to say that like, oh, the face, <laughs> the face of all of the, the male and female people that you paint your entire life look exactly like <laughs> your muse um, in terms of facial structure and expressions is, is really funny to read about. And it's also, I mean, it's also, it's also kind of bizarre at the same time, right? I mean, like, kind of giving the game away ever so slightly when every time he presents a, a portrait, someone says, oh, that looks a lot like Gene Brody. I mean, <laughs> to the point that his wife, Deirdre, is eventually like, you know, I've never met this Miss Brody. Maybe she should come over for, uh, maybe she would like to come over for tea sometime. And Teddy immediately goes, no, she won't. Like, just like, I try to keep those parts of his lives as separate as possible, which is really funny in its in its own way i think but i mean it also gets to the the notion i think of uh transfiguration that starts to show up throughout at uh, different points in the novel because yes a lot of them like certain elements of the portraits of what he's done with his brushwork absolutely make the subject um i believe especially rose is the one that he starts uh painting the most because well, she's beautiful and she also is a phenomenal uh, model. But elements of them absolutely of those portraits absolutely look like Jean Brody, but it's not like he's reproducing her every time. It's just there's something that makes it look like Miss Brody. There's this greater sensibility that comes across and it's immediately recognizable to the girls in the set, especially Sandy, because they are, I mean, they are imbued with Gene Brody by the time all is said and done. Um, but Transfiguration also, also uh, that notion 
um, plays a big role in Sandy's life. Um, the jump ahead information we get about Sandy is that uh, she ends up a nun in a cloister, um, having written a book. Uh, she studies psychology and then and converts um, to Catholicism um, after her senior um, school experience. Um, but she writes a book called The Transfiguration of the Commonplace. Um, and it seems that that experience and what she got out in that leads her into the cloister, but also makes her a celebrity of sorts. Uh, converts, spiritual seekers, psychologists, folks from different faiths all come and speak to her. Um, and so do her friends from the set uh, while she's in cloister to like get a sense of where did this come from? This is such an, and we don't ever get any of the meat of the book. Um, it's more hinted at by the things that, the things that Sandy thinks about and, and speaks of. But um, have you ever been to a cloistered convent? Well, I've visited some, but I've never like spent the night there or anything. Um, I've been to a couple and just for our listeners who haven't experienced it, some cloister comments are fully cloistered. You will never interact with the, the nuns there. That just doesn't happen. Others do allow for engagement and that's a way for family to say hello for other folks to come by. But usually the way it's done and the way it's done here is that, um, there is a wall or a grill, um, a metal grill in between, uh, the, religious um order whichever religious order it is um the nuns and the folks the lay people who have come to talk or doesn't have to be lay people i'm i'm overcomplicating this anyway um typically and it's as it said in the novel typically folks just sit and they talk through the grill to one another but when people come to see sandy sandy's at the grill clutching it almost like she's desperate to escape there's there's a there's an element of desperation to how she talks and and what she's thinking. Um, it suggests that she had a breakdown. I'm not sure, but like it's there's an intensity to that that's really quite it's really quite interesting and fascinating, and also fascinating when you pull in the outcomes for all the other of the set. We already know that Mary dies. Um, Jenny does become an actress uh, of moderate fame and travels around quite a bit with her um, husband, who is a uh, theater manager, I believe. Um, Monica gets married, but is going to be separated because she can't control her temper. And she threw something in a fight at her um, husband's husband's sister. Uh, Eunice marries a doctor. Um, Rose marries a, bus marries a businessman, I believe. Um, and on and on. And so you've got this full range of outcomes and this spectrum um, all from this set. And yeah, I I just find that kind of fascinating. I mean, it's, I frankly, I frankly think this is the kind of novel that you could, and there probably do exist. I didn't do that heavy of a lift of research, but there have to be like, what, a couple thousand like doctoral theses just going in on some element of this book. I mean, it just, it's an entire, it's an entire universe of experience within these pages. And it's really, and that's true in all of her books, I think, but there's something even more happening in this one. Tell me if you agree with, with this premise. I feel that Sandy is similar in a lot of ways to, it seems like in almost every spark novel that we've read there's a young woman that has some aspect of sandy to her um she's a little bit weird um you know isn't isn't really gonna be you know your standard homemaker and mother of two um married with the white picket fence she's ambitious in a way but also, in a way, very impractical, very smart, um, and really quirky. And I feel like we've read a number of novels um, so far where there is a character like that. 
in the novel. That's just, um, and you know, like in, um, the comforters, you know, that, that character was going through a spiritual, you know, kind of, um, converted to Catholicism and then was, you know, constantly questioning, um, questioning her faith and, and Catholicism. And, um, you know, in the, in the bachelors, um, we had, we had a woman like that. I'm not remembering all of their names off the top of my head, but it just seems that, um, that there's, there's usually a young woman who is someone that, that has secrets on some of the other people, um, and is just, is just a bit edgy. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I mean, certainly, it certainly could be the case that in some ways Spark is tracing um, different outcomes for a certain character. You know, if not for this, then this would be the case. If born at this time results in in these in these particularities or these outcomes, um, sure, that that definitely that definitely more than tracks and and makes sense and would be fitting with some a lot of the themes that she's playing with. I think. At this point, though, we should probably address an elephant in the room that folks who have read this are probably screaming that we haven't brought up yet. Um, and that's that uh, Miss Jean Brody, this beautiful, uh, very different kind of educator, uh, charting her own particular course uh, through 1930s Edinburgh, uh, is a fascist um, and is not and is not just a fascist in terms of we had that moment in um Marius where uh Deza describes um is that Deza? Uh, where where Jack uh talks about how some some writers you can tell are fascist just by their writing style. Well he she's not a fascist by her writing style or by a certain particular um outlook. She full throatedly supports Mussolini. Um, part of the way through the novel, she very much she's going to take uh, on her break a trip to Germany and Austria to see Hitler and the brown shirts because the brown shirts are so much more reliable than the black shirts. And that Hitler, you can really con him to get things done. And there's no unemployment in these places and on and on. And and from the beginning, I think you can get the feel that the Brody set isn't just a, a group of girls taken under the wing of, a, of an interested teacher, but there is a cult-like quality to how she's influencing them. I'm, I'm being very hesitant to use the word grooming, um, but there is, it feels in a way, an element of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, whatever else Jean Brody is, she also is, she also is, is, a, is a fascist. It's a little hard to get your head around whether or not she's really thought very thoroughly about um, these fascist leaders' political philosophy. I mean, I would I would say Mussolini. I would just kind of almost throw that in there as just part of her adoration for anything Italian of that of that time, but you can't because she's also in love with Franco. And, um, so yeah, there's some, there's some reason I almost think it's, it's part of her romanticism. Um, but she also, she also talks to the girls a lot about being dependable and how, how important a trait it is to be dependable. Um, and so I, I think that in some way she sees these, this, these regimes in these countries all under the umbrella of, of fascism as being, you know, dependable in some way, or almost like, you know, you know, you know what you're, you're getting. And, um, you know, she's, she's very, she's very adamant that at least in the, in the case of Mussolini, that he's, he's definitely making Italy like, you know, again, the creme de la creme, like, like this, you know, almost paradise on earth. Yeah, there, there's definitely like an aesthetic principle 
I think that she finds attractive about the fascists. Um, and I think that tying into her love for the Roman, as it were, um, the classical, uh, certainly falls, certainly like dovetails with that. And yeah, I mean, like there isn't a ton in here that's especially overtly political other than the fact that, you know, there's a, a strong anti-Franco viewpoint in the school among the teachers and the students. Um, and when that's first introduced very late in the novel, when that comes up that the Spanish Civil War is taking place, you get the sense almost immediately that there will be at least one person who doesn't, who does not subscribe to that viewpoint um, that, uh, that you should be anti-Franco. Um, and she doesn't, and it leads to a pretty uh, unfortunate outcome for uh, a student. Um, I do wonder if uh, this is also spark grappling with how ideologies and belief systems play out and influence outcomes, influence life choices. Um, I mean, I said at the outset that her other novels give this cross section of society and belief systems, um, you know, and there's a lot of the, the spiritualists in all of the novels, it seems, and um, uh, tension between um, forms of Christianity, but especially, most especially within the ranks of uh, the Roman Catholic Church between the, the folks born into it and those who converted to it. Um, but here we have a, a sense of history to where Brody's choices lead, like what it what comes with it and what comes with, um, if it is just a, a sense of aesthetics that's so attractive, what the result of being just of only paying attention to the aesthetics and not paying attention to the meat of it. Um, I don't know if that sounds very vaguely familiar to some of what's going on in our country currently. Um, God, what a dumb what what a dumb species we are. But anyways, she's obviously aware that she's dealing with a very malleable group of kids. Um and she she comments on it to them, you know, I think that one of her favorite sayings is something like I'm putting old heads on young shoulders or something like that. And, and she's very, very proud of the fact that she's an educator. She is right now in her prime and she has a calling. She's, she's almost, it's almost a, like a messianic kind of, of purpose that I'm going to, I'm, I'm forming, I'm molding these, these young women. But she seems to have no consciousness about the fact that uh, of the, of the dangerous side of that of her, of her influence. And certainly none of the faculty members are buying her bullshit. So she doesn't really have influence with anyone, but, but these girls, and maybe that's what attracts her in her calling that she, that she can kind of, or thinks that she can form little Jean Brody's in her in her image and she even talks to to them about like well it's hard to say when each of you individually will be in your prime it all happens at different times you know for for everyone but yeah she she certainly thinks she's got a duty um and and she's extremely dedicated and she fights tooth and nail to not get kicked out of this of this school because she, she believes in what she's doing and, and it's, it's really her whole identity, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's, that's really well said and a really big part of what, what is driving her and what interests her. Um, it's also notable that she doesn't really, it's not like she has a set, uh, out of every school year. Um, she basically has these girls and follows them for seven years. Um, and once, once the girls are graduated, um, then we hear that there's a new set of girls that she's starting to develop and take under her sphere. Um, and certainly I think the messianic and the idea that this is, a, not just a duty, but like a responsibility, a thing that she, that she, that she has to do because that is what her role is. And, 
and this is an expression of her prime. Um, and I'm sure that a lot of the uh, psychologists of the day would have had a field day uh, describing what was motivating her. So close to uh, the Freudian era, I think uh, a lot of um, chatter about the unconscious and um, unknown desires uh, in, in influencing Gene Brody's actions would be would run rampant. And actually, at a point um, as Sandy engages her studies in psychology, she does start to uh, to assign some of that to uh, to Gene Brody and to her her fellows in in the set. Yeah, it's interesting to think if Gene Brody's beau um, hadn't died on the fields of Flanders and they actually married and had children. I mean, could you imagine what this woman would do to, to her own kids? I mean, it would have been like the most batshit mother child experience. (laughs) I think (laughs) it would not, it would not have borne, it would not have borne very good fruit at all. Although who knows, maybe she would have been, Maybe she would provide children to uh, back Mosley. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't see very good outcomes from from Jean Brody having her own kids at all. I agree. Um, there's this one line in here. There are a bunch of amazing lines in here, but there's one that really jumped out at me. Um, and this is about Jenny uh, in the future, or Jenny in 1958 or so, when she's in Rome with her husband and standing on a train platform, and she just. I'll just read it. It happened she was standing with a man whom she did not know very well outside a famous building in Rome waiting for the rain to stop. She was surprised by a reawakening of that same buoyant and airy discovery of sex, a total sensation which it was impossible to say was physical or mental, only that it contained the loss and guileless delight of her 11th year. She She supposed herself to fall in love with a man who might, she thought, have been moved towards her in his own way out of a world of his own, the associations of which were largely unknown to her. There was nothing whatever to be done about it, for Jenny had been contentedly married for 16 years past. But the concise happening filled her with astonishment whenever it came to mind in later days and with a sense of the hidden possibilities in all things. But it's also that, I mean, I think I think two things. The associations of which were largely unknown to her and the hidden possibilities in all things is a lot of what this novel is about. Um, opportunities, paths not taken, but also how a moment that seems so inconsequential can play such an outsized role in a decision you make seven years down the line or how it builds upon another moment and another moment and another moment leading to a choice that runs counter to everything you've done previously. And in this case, in this novel, it's the choice by one of the girls to betray Brody. I mean, and the headmistress, uh, Miss McKay, has been trying to get these girls to give her something, anything on Brody since Brody created the set. Um, just constantly bringing them in for tea, asking them questions, trying. I mean, she even at one point. So when you graduate to the senior school, you can either go classical or modern. And um, Brody clearly thinks the girls should all go classical. Um, and that's what all the girls want to do. But Mary can't because her grades aren't good enough. But in an effort to try and get Mary to like on her side, McKay lets her take Latin, lets her sort of kind of like bridge the gap a little bit. But, and this is another moment where it said that Mary is too stupid to realize what's taking place here. Um, McKay realizes after making this, you know, making this allowance and then bringing Mary in for tea, that there's no way in hell Mary's ever going to give her anything worthwhile. But yeah, every year she tries to get something out of these girls that will incriminate incriminate Brody or at least put enough pressure on Brody to force her to resign um, from the school. And it doesn't work until the girls are all out of school um, and one of them does after after resisting for seven years, after being devoted to this woman for, at that point, what, almost half their life? Um, she makes a different choice and thrusts Jean Brody out of her prime. It seems to me that I need to make a amendment to something that I said before, because there's, there's a really interesting aspect of the novel that I want to talk with you about Tom. And I had made a generalization that 
um, that that Brody really didn't think about um, the negative aspects of her influence. There is something that she does do, though, very intentionally, that it's hard to think that she would uh, think that this was... Uh, part of the education of the of the girls but she picks out a surrogate for herself for teddy lloyd um you know she knows that she's teddy lloyd's muse they have had you know at least um some passion between them um but you know brody also knows that there's no future there because he's married with six kids and you know he's never going to be not married Catholic with six kids. So it's obvious that he's not going to like marry her. Um, and so first of all, I guess my question for you is why do you think that she, she wants, um, a surrogate for herself because she's, she, I think is in love with Teddy Lloyd at this point. And then, and then, Two, like what, like a totally creepy, manipulative thing to do to a young girl, a young woman to kind of, because you, you, she knows Teddy Lloyd is, is a a bit of a sexual predator. So she, she knows that it's probably not going to be all innocent if she, if she sets up someone, um, one of her set to be, modeling for for teddy lloyd um and and she specifically picks out you know the the prettiest girl in the set so i kind of wanted to talk with you about what you think's going on there yeah i mean this is actually why i i kind of shied away from using but probably should have used the word grooming before i mean she is grooming um the girl uh for this and i think gene brody is very good at self-justification I think that because she can't have Teddy, she feels that some element of herself could have Teddy and should have Teddy. And the girls are, in some ways, and to her mind, just versions and extensions of herself. So why not have one of the girls have an affair with Teddy? Why not have them report back on everything about it down to like, I mean, she knows that the portraits look like her because the girls are reporting back on it. She knows so much information because she is living through these girls' experiences. And to her way of thinking, I think this is this is how the girl comes into her prime. Um, this is what what she has been developing towards. And um, that justifies creating the circumstances under which she would be would have an affair with, would have sex with uh, this teacher. And yeah, it's incredibly creepy. And her methods of teaching, you know, they don't comport with any, they don't comport with anything pretty standard, right? There's there's no real rote learning here, but there's also not really like any serious development of the kids. I mean, Brody go, spends a lot of time talking about how she's trying to educate them, how she's trying to expand them, where everyone else is trying to intrude upon them and force them into things. Um and because she chose fairly smart girls, they're all able to cram and do well on their exams and pass and and so on. But like, there is an argument that from Miss McKay, the headmistress in particular, that Brody's methods aren't just unorthodox; they're not actually terribly helpful to these girls. Like, they're they are whether whether she's educating them or not, she's inducting them into something. Uh, and that, that I think, I, don't know, I think for me, that's probably what allows her to push one of her girls, uh, into a situation that would lead to her having sex with, uh, at like 16, 17 with, uh, a married adult man. Yeah. And it's very, um, it's very dangerous and potentially, devastating for the girl, you know, if discovered, you know, this is a faculty member, uh, presumably, you know, especially in private boarding school in the 1930s, Scotland, you're going to get expelled pretty quickly. If you're caught, the girl could become pregnant to this, 
you know, artist that feels that, you know, it's okay to have sex with your models, but, you know, it's no skin off his back because, you know, he's got a wife and he's Catholic and, you know, so nothing, he's not going to be responsible for anything that happens. I don't know. It's just, um, in all other respects, I think I can say, I feel that although Brody is extremely, um, she's, she's, she's irrational and illogical and probably more than a little bit mad, but she seems to have a real affection for these girls. Um, unless you want to argue that the only thing that she has affection for is how she can see her own self reflected back, um, with these girls. But this just seems to be like a mean thing to do to like set up this, this surrogate situation or, maybe not mean, maybe, you know, as part of her philosophy. And I think you're, you're right on that, Tom, about, you know, oh, it's like, you know, artistic and, you know, and romantic to be, you know, a model for a painter kind of thing. But man, really irresponsible. But I guess the whole fascism thing is really <laughs> irresponsible. Yeah. Too. I mean, once, once you establish the fascism bit, a lot of other things kind of not quite pale, but maybe slot into a slot into a different, you're not building the puzzle you thought you were. Let's put it that way. It's a, it's a very, it's a more of a, a fascist, a fasci puzzle. Um, yeah, no, I, I just think I don't. I won't go quite so far as to say that her um, affection for the girls is purely rooted in her seeing herself in them. I mean, I think it, it's. But I think it's damn close. Like I, I, I think it kind of straddles that line quite a bit, um, and that is what allows her to. I mean, to turn a blind, to turn a blind eye to whether or not like they're really getting a, the education they need because she's decided that they are to continue to influence and in some ways control them and to set them on on the paths that she thinks they should, they should be set on. Um, and then once they're out of her reach, more or less to start up with a new group, um, to create a new Brody set to move through the next seven years of the school. She's a really fascinating, strange, unsettling character, especially when we see her, uh, post, uh, forced resignation, retirement, what have you, and how small she becomes. One of the last times, like chronologically, that we see her, um, she's not well. She dies like a month later. Um, she's sick. But even before then, when she meets with her set um, and they talk, she just seems smaller and smaller and smaller. And I believe it's Monica who, and every time she brings up that she can't figure out which one of the girls betrayed her. And maybe it was this person. And it's never the person she's speaking to because she wants to keep them on side. Um, but maybe it was this one, or maybe it was that one, or this, maybe they did it for this reason. I think it's Monica that reflects that, um, how different she seems from when she, when Monica was a girl, how, how the Gene Brody that, the Gene Brody of the thirties, the Gene Brody of uh, Monica's 10th through 17th years would would it be would have been fighting had fight in her and this one is just defeated and trying to make sense of how she lost which i don't know maybe mirrors some of the some of the fascist elements too i'm not sure well mentioning the movie again all of these contradictory extravagant eccentric wonderful qualities that spark creates in this novel for the character of Miss Jean Brody is played out with such skill by Dame Maggie Smith in the 1969 movie. I, I would highly recommend it because she brings out so many, so many faucets of this, of this really complicated um, character, the, you know, the repellent, aspects of her and then like the magnetic aspects of her too. And the, and the ambition and the romanticism and the strength, but then also the, for the, you know, the fragility of her. Um, it's just a really wonderful performance. Uh, may I read 
one of the those amazing lines that uh, Muriel Spark is able to produce about a city a cityscape. I mean, we talked about this in the Ballad of Peckham Rye, how there was almost that cinematic quality to the final page and the sun hitting the park and, and all those things. And um, she just has such a sense of how how an urban space can can just, I don't know, stun and um, bewilder and enliven someone. Um, but throughout this, Edinburgh has not, Edinburgh has often been described as fairly dark. Um, very gray, um, imposing architecture, all of that. But here we have. It was then that Miss Brodie looked beautiful and fragile, just as dark, heavy Edinburgh itself could suddenly be changed into a floating city when the light was a special pearly white and fell upon one of the gracefully fashioned streets. There are masters of lighting who have been trying to create that effect in in movies for decades and sometimes they pull it off some great cinematographers out there um and they're writers who've been trying to with one line encapsulate how a scene can change but i don't think there are many much better than muriel spark yeah i agree she's she's masterful tell me tom do you have any title comps for this one Oh, Christ. Um, we don't usually do that for the Sparks. I was not at all prepared. Um, Maybe unfair for me because I've got I've got two. Oh, um, well, why don't you then, then then do me a solid. Why don't you go first with at least one of them and we'll see if that jogs in any thoughts or if I, okay. I have a moment to think. Okay. I would say that in some aspects, this book reminds me of The Secret History by Donna Tartt. Just so much in the fact that you've got you've got a private school, you've got this instructor, um, teacher, professors set, you know, the the favored pupils, and they're their own little clique, and it's kind of um, you know, they kind of can't see outside of, you know, their little their little bubble that they're in. Uh a manip- manipulative uh, adult who's um, really affecting the way these kids think about life um, in in unorthodox ways. Um, of course, you know, most people listening will probably have read The Secret History. It, I won't say that it goes to the that kind of level of violence, um, but I did say at the start that there are some gothic elements to the book, and maybe those are a little bit heavier on my mind because I saw the movie. You know, it's Scotland. Um, some of it takes place in the winter. Um, so, you know, not much light, dark. And certainly I think the secret history is gothic. So um, that's my first one. So one of the hard things about like – really nailing and this happens to me sometimes even when i'm making a recommendation to a customer or to someone else is that if i'm like in the throes of a book or like really besotted by a book it's very hard to think of anything else that's like it because you're just taking in so much of of the whole of it um there's there's definitely a book that's and i think it's by a british writer that's like on the tip of my tongue that has a similar setup but or not similar setup but like a Again, that boarding school feel, that sort of thing, but I can't place it. Um, it's not O Caledonia, is it? It is not. Is that your second one? No, that wasn't okay. my second one. Okay. Have you read that one? I have not. Um, who's that by? I forget who did O Caledonia, but uh, it Elspeth Barker. It looks like. Yeah, that's another. That's another one of those kind of like cult classics that just kind of. And it's it's written a little bit in this style, like the beginning of the novel starts where this this girl is like lying dead at the bottom of a staircase dressed in her mother's clothing. And then like you just get the whole backstory of like this dysfunctional home and how weird the girl is and that nobody in her family likes her because she's so weird. And I don't know it. There's some style style wise and atmosphere. I think there's some similarities. Okay. What's your second one? 
now that you throw the third one in. My second one is is like totally weird and quirky, and it only there's it's only because of one element, and it's the obsession with the character of Jean Brody to keep referring to herself and thinking of herself as being in her prime. So I don't know whether you've ever read um, uh, Mario Los um, Los Vargos's. Um, Aunt Julia and the scriptwriter. It's hilarious. I, I, I okay. It's a hilarious novel, but um, the the narrator of that novel um, is a is a man. I think he's in his forties, but he he goes on and on about how he's in the prime of his life, and then when he's talking about other people, um, if they are of or about the same age as him. He'll, he'll like state their age and it'll be like, and of course he was in the prime of his life. And it's just this mantra that just keeps being (laughs) repeated over and over again. And every time that, um, Miss Brody talked about being in her prime, it just, it reminds me of that very, very funny novel. Unfortunately, I don't think I'm going to come up with one. I'm just still, doing the whole reeling from from this one. Those are all really, I mean, those all make a ton of sense. Um, secret history, history especially. Um, and that raises a good question of, it's, it's interesting reading these and seeing what or who she may have influenced after the fact. Like who is... Who has done the full mural spark read through and it really shaped or or read enough of them or specific ones that had played such a significant role in um and what they did next. Um I mean, just in terms of like Spark as a writer on the whole, some of Kingsley Amos's like especially his later work, um, The Old Devils. I mean, that I, I think she's a better writer. I mean, he's good. Not I'm not saying Kingsley Amos isn't good. Um, I think she's better, but there are so many elements of the old devils that like almost feel, it almost feels like a mural spark type of book from, from at least this period that we've been reading. Um, so maybe that's, yeah, I'm not familiar with that one. It's, it's um, following a bunch of old men in Wales in the 1980s that were all, um, they all knew each other. I mean, it has a lot of similarities to Memento Mori shit. As I'm thinking about it, they're, they're all, most of them are in bad health. One of them has become a you know incredibly famous poet. Um, they all were at school together. Um, they share some of them ha- had the same girlfriend at different points, and now here they're in their eighties, trying to kind of still make a go of things, and are still drinking hard. And it's it's a very it's it's fun. Um, but yeah, there's there's a certain <laughs> there's a real quality of memento mori to it. Now that I'm thinking about it, um, so not. Not a comp to Prime and Miss Jean Brody, maybe a, a comp to for, from a few episodes back. Uh, uh, we'll treat that as a win. Yeah, I feel like there's got to be like um, a Tessa Moshvig author of our generation that's done a British boarding school book, and it's been kind of like a you know a, a little bit of like a a weird, nasty, manipulative kind of thing, and I'm just not just not coming up with I haven't really dug into his like I haven't read his novel yet um but Brian Washington I'm kind of curious about in terms of that um because he does do a lot in terms of interpersonal like interactions and he does have a good eye for that sort of thing um he also had a tweet a while ago talking about um the spark heads um so I get the feeling that he's definitely encountered some mural spark um but I'll have to give him a look and see if that that if that's just a wild guess on my part that actually like has some relationship to reality. Yeah, I feel like there's a ton of novels out there like about academia, you know, like mm-hmm. the college campus novel, which, you know, is like what the secret history is. A lot of those I think just kind of get into like the politics of being in, you know at an institution like that and, and like the dysfunction of like the professors and the relationships. So yeah, I don't know. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to spring something on you that you weren't ready. And I didn't, I didn't even think about, I didn't even think about the fact that we don't usually do that for the spark. I guess I never really 
picked yeah, that I th- up. I think it's a, I think it's a fun way to to bring the, this first uh, half season uh, to an end. I, that's 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 good. Something different. Maybe something we should do a little bit more of, or or perhaps like I don't know. I mean, we're, we're reading we're reading a lot of books over a very long period of time from this author's life. So it may behoove us at some point to start, if we feel like it, saying whether we feel there are eras to it or there are particular movements that she's going through. Um, I mean, I certainly think that these all, these first six all hang together in a very particular way. And I, I'm curious what the next one will be like, because it feels like this is a punctuation mark of sorts, um, both because of how freaking good it is and also because it's so stylistically, thematically similar, but stylistically, I think, different from what came before. So we'll see. Well, it's been fun talking about it. This has been so much fun digging into all of Miro Sparks' work. I'm looking forward to everything we're going to do in the new year. And um, I guess all the listeners, thanks for listening and hope you've been reading along or if you haven't yet, you you make some plans to do so. And uh, we will talk to you in uh, 2024. Happy holidays. 